nobody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. How often do you think about that in your own mind or say that with your own words? I mean, you're in the fast food line. For 20 minutes, the cars in front of you are taking forever. And with each passing moment, your heart rate and your anger is growing. And you're looking around like nobody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Maybe you're on a team. When a team is going well, everything is gravy. But as soon as it starts to be some struggles, a few turnovers, a few missed shots, immediately your heart turns to accusation and you say, quite broadly, nobody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. More seriously, when physicians who are supposed to help spare lives instead work to take lives away, or police officers who are supposed to protect lives work to end lives, it causes us to reflect that it feels like nobody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. But you notice how often when we make those claims, the nobody never includes us. It's always them out there. None of them are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Well, our pastors this morning Jesus Christ shines a light on you, on me. And ask the simple question, are you doing what you are supposed to be doing? Friends, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25, and this morning we'll look at verses 14 through 30 together. This is Jesus Christ final sermon is five sermons that Jesus preaches in the book of Matthew and this one is the sermon on Mount Olives where Jesus Christ is speaking of the future of his return back to earth and telling his people telling his disciples what they must expect as they await his return this morning we'll look at 25 starting at verse 14 going through verse 30 if you have a bible of your your own you you'll find Matthew in the New Testament, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, right right before Mark and Luke and John is one of the four Gospels. If you need a Bible, you can find one under the chairs. And if you're using one of those Bibles provided, you can find it on page 830. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can take that one home with you as our gift to you. I see you, Carter. You're holding that Bible up. Keep on holding that Bible in your hands, little brother. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Jesus says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each, according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. 
Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servants. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what I think is the, the main idea of of these 17 verses, the main idea of Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. God expects us to be faithful stewards of whatever he's entrusted to us. God expects us to be faithful stewards over whatever he's entrusted to us. As we look at this passage this morning, I want us to hang our thoughts on one observation and two questions that I think we see arising from this text. So three points. Point number one, Christians got talents. We said in verses 14 through 15. Number two, what will you do then with what God has given you? We said in verses 16 through 18. And number three, what will you give the Lord when he returns? We see that in verses 19 through 30. Number one, Christians got talent. Number two, what will you do with what the Lord has given you? Number three, what will you give the Lord when he returns? First, Christians got talents. No, this isn't simply a Jesus juke or a righteous ripoff of America's got talents. But well, we see clearly here in the text that Christians got talents. In this text, Jesus, again, is using the form of a parable to teach deep spiritual truths, deep spiritual realities about his anytime return and what his people should be doing in the meantime until he comes back. As the beginning of verse 14 says, it will be like well, the it there is in reference to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, if you let your eyes float over or float up to the first verse of chapter 25, Jesus said there, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Well, that's the same thing he's talking about here in this parable. The it belongs or refers to the kingdom of heaven, the, the time when Jesus Christ will come back to, to consummate his kingdom. In this parable, Jesus is the man, the master represented in verse 14 who goes away on a journey. Again, just think about the timeline here. Jesus Christ is in the final week of his life on earth. He's, he's about to be crucified in just a few days. But for Jesus, the cross would be fatal, but not final. He knew he would rise and ascend to heaven to be with his heavenly father. Just as Jesus journeyed from heaven to earth to save us from our sins, so he would journey back to heaven from earth to reclaim his heavenly throne, to return back to us, to bring us into his kingdom. Jesus is the journeying master in this passage. And the servants in this parable represent professing Christians, just as the ten virgins in the parable last week represented professing Christians. And to these servants in this parable, the master has entrusted to them his property. Verse 15 says he gave them talents. Now, what pops into our minds here might be oratorical eloquence or the ability to sing or to draw or to build or to play an instrument. Well, some skill or some aptitude. That's, that's often how we think of the word talent. That's often how we've heard this passage interpreted, which is, which is not a bad application. But the main meaning of the term talent here in this text is a monetary unit. A talent is a measure of money. In the first century, when Jesus spoke these words, one talent was equivalent to 20 years wages for a laborer. 
right? So just one talent was equivalent to 20 years worth of wages. To put that in a, in a bit of context, the minimum wage for a laborer in the state of Maryland is $13.25 per hour. If you multiply that $13.25 per hour times 2,000 hours, which is roughly uh, 40 hours a week for an entire year, if you multiply that, it adds up to, to $26,500 a year. Now multiply that by 20 years, it comes to $530,000. That would be the lowest level modern day equivalent of just one talent. One talent at the minimum is 530K today. It's an incredible amount of money. And these servants have it. Not inherently, it's not self-made money. They've not worked for it or earned it. Rather, they've been given this great treasure. It's been entrusted to them, which just shows the wealth of the master. He owns a vast amount and so is able to freely disperse what he has. It reminds us of what Joseph read for us earlier in Psalm 50, that God owns everything. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He don't need to ask nobody for nothing. Here, Jesus, the son of God, shows the vast treasure that he has. He owns it all. He is master, but freely entrusts what is his to servants like us. To one servant, he gave five talents, which using the calculations we just drew up would be equivalent to about $2.6 million today. To another servant, he gave two talents, which would be roughly $1 million today. To another, the one talent, which would be worth $530,000. Friends, see here the, the esteem the master has for his servants. The esteem the Lord has for his people. He doesn't treat his servants like scum who are beneath him. He doesn't treat them like subjects whose sole job is to do whatever orders the master barks out. He doesn't simply load them with back-breaking work. He lavishes them with the riches of his treasure. He treats them more like heirs than like slaves. Friends, that's something of the relationship between the Lord, the master, Jesus Christ, and his people, whom he's purchased by his precious blood to be his very own. He's lavished upon us the riches of his grace. He's called us to be his very own and to live for him. And he's furnished us with all kinds of gifts and resources with everything we need to faithfully live for him and for his kingdom. All we have needed, his hand has richly provided. The Lord Jesus is wealthy and willing to share. He has ginormous riches and is generous. He gives what he has. And he gives what we can handle. And notice the end of verse 15 says, the master gave to each servant according to his ability. Because the Lord has intimate knowledge of us. He made us and knows our capacity. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. He knows our temptations and our longings. He made us and has placed us where he has us. He has determined where we are in life. And he knows exactly what we need for each sphere in which he's assigned us. And so his giving is neither random or haphazard. It is tailor-made for each individual. God gives one servant, five talents, another servant, two talents, and another one to each according to their ability. But you know what our problem is, all right? We often respond, why you only give me five? Or why two and not five? Or why only one? The better question is, why give me anything? I mean, he could have given us what we deserve, which is an eternity in hell for all the sins we've done against him. But he chose out of his own free will to show you and I grace. Amen. 
to give us what we do not deserve. Too often we complain about what we don't have. Because too often we're looking at what others have. We see somebody else doing something super spiritual, maybe standing behind a pulpit preaching like this. And we might think, I ain't got the confidence or, or the skill to be no preacher. Well, maybe God ain't equipped or called you to be a preacher. We see somebody who seems to have great charisma and, and people skills, who lights up any room that they walk into, who compared to your more introverted personality seems to have far more than you and often makes you lament the type of person that you are. But friends, that is of the devil. The Lord wants you to look at all he has given you as a gift and to praise him for it instead of complaining about what you seemingly lack. I mean, even what he's given you that you think is a curse might actually be a gift. I mean, think of Moses complaining when God called him into his service. Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and got a stammering tongue. The Lord responded, boy, who gave you that mouth? Yeah, you might not have the eloquent mouth of a statesman, but you have a mouth that I made and that I will fill with my words for you to fulfill my purposes. Maybe you think of something the Lord has given you, such as singleness as a curse. Because you look at it solely through the lens of what you don't have, a spouse. But, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 to look at singleness as something that you do have. More time and more attention to give undivided devotion to the Lord. Singleness is a gift that God gives for the sake of his kingdom. God may not give us everything or what the next person has, but the Lord has given all of us something. Something incredibly value, valuable, something fit specifically for us that he intends for us to use for his glory and for the good of others. That could be money or time or circumstance or season of life or gifting or opportunity. It could be the message of the gospel, the great treasure, the greatest treasure that he's entrusted to jars of clay like us. He's given all of us something valuable. The question then is, what will you do with what God has given you? And that's our second point this morning. What will you do with what God has given you? Notice at the end of verse 15, the master entrusts these servants with this incredible treasure. And we read, then he went away. Now, now what might your mindset be there. The master gives and then he goes away. You might figure, well, when the boss is away, the boys will play. I mean, young people, when your teacher tells you that she'll be out of commission, out of the classroom for a couple of weeks for a surgery and leaves you a packet to, to complete with the substitute, you're like, yeah, right. Party time. But right, you think it's time to, to lax off, to, to slack off. Here the master has left and left these servants with great wealth. I mean, what would you do? You might think to spend it on yourself. I mean, a lump sum is just calling to be spent. I mean, some of y'all already got plans for that tax return when it comes. That new iPhone, them new shoes, expensive purse, plan that vacation. But notice what this first servant did. Verse 16 says, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. This man just received the equivalent of $2.6 million, more than he'd ever had before, probably more than he ever dreamed of ever having in his hands. But his first thoughts were not on self-indulgence, but on what he could do for his master. The text tells us that immediately or at once he traded with the talents and made five more. He didn't linger around and play with the master's money. 
He didn't say, well, the master just left on this journey. He's going to take some time to come back. And so I can wait a while and I'll see what happens. He immediately went about his master's business. He traded with the money. He put the money to work. He did not spend his master's money on himself. He did not sit on his master's money. He sought to multiply it. He wanted to give back to his master more even than the amazing amount the master had entrusted to him. Even though it wasn't his money. He so treasured the master that he wanted to see his possessions and his influence grow. He was not embarrassed or ashamed to help build another man's empire, to help build into another man's kingdom. He was honored to be able to serve in that man's service. And he labored faithfully for his master. The text tells us that the second servant did likewise. Verse 17 says, so also the one who had the two talents made two talents more. Just as the other servant, he diligently worked with what the master gave him. He had less than the first man, but it did not lead him to work less because he had the same master. And because of his great worth, the second servant labored to multiply what he'd been entrusted with. And friends, labor, it was. I think we might see the example of these first two servants here. And only focus on their success. I mean, both of them doubled what they'd been given. But it did not happen overnight. It wasn't by magic. It involved some sweat capital. It involved some planning and some plotting. It involved taking some risk. We're not, we're not told exactly what they did, but they did something. These men were diligent. They were industrious. They were creative. They were enterprising. They were endeavoring to do much, to make much for their master. These are something of the habits that flow from the heart of a genuine Christian. As a Christian, you've been enlisted into Christ's service. The very one who became a servant for us. Jesus Christ, the author of creation, the one through whom all things exist, the one who was infinitely glorious and powerful and perfect, humbled himself, took on flesh and became a servant for us. He came into the world to save dead sinners like us and give us new life. He came into the world to grant rebels like us forgiveness. He came into the world to call servants like us to a new and a better and a far, far more glorious service. You see, this might sound a little off-putting going to Christ's service, but it's glorious because you got to realize we were all born servants. We were all born already slaves to terrible masters, to sin. And to Satan, you know, that's why you can't stop doing the things that you keep on doing because you are in bondage. The Bible tells us we are all following the ways of this wicked world. We are all born inheriting Adam's sinful nature and all bound to follow the antagonist of sin, Satan and all his schemes to do wrong. None of us are free. We need instead to be freed. We are all following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among all the sons of disobedience, causing us to carry out the desires of the, the body and the mind, making us by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are all bound to sin and destined for hell, for serving the world, and the flesh, and the devil. But Jesus Christ came to set us free, to save us from our sins and to put us in a better service. He did that by becoming sin for us. He took on our flesh and then took on our sins. He took on the wrath that was deserved for our sins from a good and holy God so that we would not have to face wrath and judgment later. Jesus Christ ate wrath. He ate God's judgment on the cross for sinners like us and for all of those like, of, like us who turn from our sins and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross. 
who trusts not only in his work on the cross, but his getting up from the grave after three days, showing that his death was sufficient payment for all the sins of all those who ever turn from their sins and trust in him. He grants eternal life. For all of us who trust in Christ and turn from sins, regardless of age or race or social status or all the mess you've done wrong, no matter how long your rap sheet is. You know, sometimes the police pull you over and they didn't they didn't ran that report when they when they run those tags and they see all those warrants out for your arrest or they see what you've done wrong. And that causes them to treat you more harshly when they do get to you. The Lord ain't like that. He knows your full record and your full rap sheet, but he comes to you in grace. He don't come to you treating you like a rebel. He comes to you and say, come to me. All you who labor and who are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you something far better. I'll give you rest. I'll give you joy. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you a new life. He'll give you the thing that you need most this morning. If you turn from your sins and trust in him. Jesus Christ calls you into a better service. Don't leave here still a slave to sin and to Satan. He's going to lead you to a wrathful God. Leave here knowing the gracious work of a good and gracious Savior who calls us into his heavenly service. Live for him. You see, when you, when you treasure the real master, the true and better master, it transforms how you live. Right? You want to live for him. There's an inward motivation to please him that drives outward actions. There's an inward motivation to honor him that fuels your everyday steps. When you're astonished at what the Lord has done for you, you seek to see it multiplied. You know, I can't believe he's been this good to me. Let me go tell somebody else about this good news. Let me tell somebody else about the God who loves and who's gracious and who's willing to save. I mean, just think of some of the Bible's commands, not only to, to be disciples, but to make disciples. I think of Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Paul was astonished that the Lord has saved him and had entrusted him with the message of salvation. And so he instructed his protege, Timothy, what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will be able also to teach others. And Paul's heart was so captured by King Jesus that he wanted multiple generations to know him. Paul said, it's not just about what I got. I got to labor to, to, to invest in the next generation. And Timothy, you labor to invest in the next generation. You take these little two fish and five loaves and see what the Lord might do to multiply them. So we're called to do. He, Paul wanted to give his life. He risked his life for the purpose of seeing God's work and God's kingdom grow. That's the work of a Christian. This life is not about us, but about him. All that we are and all that we have is due to him. And so we want to maximize and multiply everything for his glory. If he's given you a job, faithfully steward it. So that it produces not just money for you to take care of yourself and your family, but so that it produces opportunities for you to be a witness to your co-workers of the power of King Jesus. If he's given you a voracious appetite to read and to learn and keen intellect to understand hard topics, don't boast in how big your brain is. Use what the Lord has given you for the Lord's sake and for the sake of others. Read his word and read good books, decipher and, 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 and understand them so that you might share insights with others that might help them grow. Now think of the Lord, the home the Lord has given you. Not simply for you to live in, but to let others in as well, to welcome in others. I mean, I love the way so many of you already model this. You open your homes to have other members in. You host cookouts and parties, events where you invite brothers and sisters here and unbelieving neighbors and co-workers seeking to be salt and light. Now think of the actual money God has given you and how you use some of it to see gospel work go out. You give to our church budget so that the preaching of God's word locally is supported, so that missionaries globally are supported. 
so that the upkeep of this building is supported, where we can meet together and encourage one another and equip one another to be salt and light wherever the Lord places us throughout the week. Whatever God has given you, invest it in kingdom work seeking to multiply. These first two servants embody the heart and the habits of a true disciple of Jesus. But there's a third servant who doesn't. Notice how he's contrasted with the other two servants in verse 18. We read, but, it's always kind of a key, key term there, but he who received the one talent went and dug into the ground and hid his master's money. As one commentator noted, unlike the previous two servants, this one did no work except to dig a hole. He'd received a great amount as well. I mean, remember, even one talent entrusted to him was a gracious amount. But he didn't have any desire to do anything with it. He didn't have any focus on what his master may have wanted him to do. He took what his master gave him and he put it in the ground. It's the ancient equivalent of putting your money under the mattress. This man played it safe. He had no ambition, no endeavoring mind for his master. He, he said he belonged to the master, had, had been given a gift to steward, but that was enough for him. He sought to make no gains for his Lord. He had his one talent from the master and thought all his master deserved was his one talent back. He did no works to prove the preciousness of his master in his heart. You ask yourself, well, what then was he doing with all his time if he wasn't working to increase the master's kingdom? Well, he was wasting time. He was working for and living for himself. His master's name and his master's treasures were of no importance to him. He put his lights under a bushel, put his talents under the ground, and he lived life his own way. Amen. Friends, that's how many professing Christians live. They name Christ as Lord and Savior, but there's no zeal to be about his work. They don't love for others to know him. They don't want to take any risk in life to multiply the number of people who might worship him. They don't talk to no unbelievers. They don't consider missions or missionaries. They don't pray that the Lord would make use of whatever he's given them in whatever sphere. They don't cultivate and develop whatever the Lord has already given them for his purposes. Their lack of action reflects their lack of affections for the Lord. They don't consider what the Lord has given them as valuable because they don't consider the Lord as valuable. Friends, I wonder which servant's attitude and actions most closely resembles you. How are you spending your life? Is it by considering it, considering it solely your life? Or, or do you realize that your life and everything in it, everything you have, has been entrusted to you by a gracious master to use it for his glorious purposes? The breath you take is for him. The stuff he gives you is for him. The house, the job, the money he gives you is for him. Are you living life as if all the master's resources are for you to live life on your own terms? Jesus, in presenting these different servants, is meaning to hold up a mirror to us. Which one are you? You have gifts from God. What are you doing with them? Friends, use God's gift to bear good fruit. If you need help figuring out what that might look like, ask me, ask, ask Warner about some ways you might use some of your gifts to, to help our church. Go and talk to other members about ways they invest their time, their money, their giftings for the Lord's sake so that you might be encouraged to go do the same. Ask God to help you live faithfully 
for him now. That you might not live fearfully before him when he returns. And friends, the Lord is returning. And so the final question to be asked is, what will you give to God when he returns? Point number three, our third and final point. What will you give the Lord when he returns? In other words, what returns on his investment will you have to offer? The master entrusted his servants with a great trust in verses 14 and 15. Then he went away. But verse 19 tells us that after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. It reminds us of the parable last week when the bridegroom was delayed, but then suddenly came. Here, the master left and was gone for an extended period of time, but his delay did not signal that he was never coming back. After a long time, suddenly, at the appointed time, he returned. And he called his servants to present themselves and their works before him. And that's what will happen after the long delay of Jesus Christ's return. His journey to heaven has lasted 2,000 years, but it will not last forever. One day, without advance warning, he is coming back, and he will call us to present ourselves before him, to give an account for what we've done with our lives while he's been away. You know, that's the constant testimony of the scriptures. In Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul speaks of a coming day of God's judgment, a day of reckoning where he says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Or, Or Romans 14, 12 Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Or Jesus Christ earlier in this book, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Our works must be presented before God. Not as the basis of our salvation, but as true proof of it. We see that here. In verse 20, the servant who received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. He's as eager to present what he's done as he was eager to make more for his master on earth. I think we see here something of the relationship between God's grace and man's responsibility. The two are not at odds. Master, you delivered to me, you gave me what I didn't deserve. These five talents, what an amazing amount. That's grace. And look what I've done. Look what I've done with those five talents. I've made five more for you. That's man's responsibility. There's a delight to be able to put what God's given you to use and to present the finished product back to him. It's like when you you come home from work and your little child presents a, a picture or a car they created for you. With joy, they meet you at the door screaming, Daddy, 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 look what I made for you. And they pridefully present their product. This this little card on construction paper with with all kinds of beautiful colors on it and glitter and string. You bought the construction paper. You provided the colored pencils. You supplied the glitter and the string. You gave them all the resources. And there were a million things that they could have done with them. But they worked all day using all their creativity and their time to make this card, 
so that when you return, they could show you what they did with what you gave them. They could show you an expression of their love for you. Friends, that's the first servant here. He enthusiastically and joyfully comes before his master. His first words still reflecting on the master's marvelous grace to him. You gave me, little old me, five talents. He could not forget what God had given him. Friends, true Christians never lose awe at what God has done for them. And his second words, then gladly pointing his master to, to show what his grace to him did. To show that his grace towards him was not in vain. Look, you gave me this. Look, I made five more. And look at the master's response in verse 21. His master said to him, well done. Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The master commends the servant's labors. Well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, you can live for yourself today and receive all kinds of praise from people. You can win accolades and awards on your job. Kids, you might get voted best personality or most likely to succeed in high school, but the best of earthly honors paled in comparison to heaven's approval. Living faithfully for Jesus in this life earns his praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not only does the Lord commend our effort, he adds to our honor and our responsibilities. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. A little? This servant had been managing millions for his master. But that's just chump change for the one who inhabits all eternity and in whose hands the palms hold the entire world. There's more in store for you. Friends, I think it encourages not to be small-minded. Don't live for all the earth, the world stuff, all the, the world stuff. Use the world stuff for the Lord's purposes so that you can have far better than anything you can get here. Faithfulness over whatever God has entrusted us to now leads to greater reward later. I mean, think about the, the later. What, what can be better than millions of dollars here? Faithfully used. Well, the Lord promises that we will reign with him forever. Amen. That we will be co-heirs of an eternal heavenly inheritance and we will judge the entire world with him. There's better ahead. Christians need to know that. He invites these, this faithful servant into that forever reality. Amen. Enter into the joy of your master. The joy that this servant felt in working hard for his master, multiplying his assets on earth, and then joyfully presenting those multiplied assets back to his master. Well, now his joy would be multiplied as he dwells in the presence of the everlasting joy of his master. And it's not just him. Verse 22 tells us that the second servant who, who received the two talents, he came forward just as enthusiastically as the first to meet the master. And he presented not just the two talents he'd been given, but the two additional talents that he'd made. And he too was met with the same commendation. The master didn't say, well, the man before you brought me five talents back. No, the amount produced was not the point but rather the heart behind the service, the desire to do the master's work with the master's resources wins the master's praise. To him also the response, well done, good, faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And friends, it's not just these two. That's the commendation and reward for all who faithfully live for King Jesus now we will one day receive this same commendation if we continue faithfully living for him. Amen. When he returns, he will have word for us. Will you be commended when Christ comes back? Amen. Or will you be condemned? We see there's another response met with a third servant's appearance before the master. 
In verse 24, the one who'd received the one talent came forward just as the previous two servants. But notice here how the story breaks. With the previous two servants, they appeared before the master. They acknowledged what they'd been given by him. Then they presented what they'd done with what they'd been entrusted with. But with this third servant, he comes, and instead of acknowledging the master's gracious provision to him, he instead immediately attacks the master's character. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you don't sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. I mean, this servant, though he uses the same terminology, master, knows a totally different master than the previous two servants. A different master than the way the master presents himself, which shows that they don't really know the master at all. Amen. He thinks of God the way many people today think of God, as some hard, overbearing, over-demanding, cruel character. Sadly, that's the way that some churches, Amen. some preachers present God as always angry, as barking out orders, as never happy, as not wanting you to ever be happy. That's the way Satan would have you think of God. And that's how he presented God to Adam and Eve, isn't it? Grumpy, a killjoy, unfair, making unrealistic and restrictive demands. But friends, you need to meet the God of the Bible. The God who, out of deep love for you, sent his son to save you. The God who, the scriptures say, rejoices over you with singing. The God who loves to give good gifts to his children and so encourages us to ask hard things of him. The God who lavishes us with grace through the shed blood of his son, Jesus. Meet the God, the master, as he presents himself in this parable. The servant thinks God, thinks Christ as a hard, cruel man. But how? Was it hard of him to give such great resources to his servants? And where did he get this idea that the master was, was cruel? I mean, the master here presents himself as joyful. He tells the first two servants to enter into the joy that he forever lives in. But, you know, when you cast God as a villain, it's easier to excuse yourself as the real villain. And that's what the servant did here. I mean, look how he follows up in verse 25. I, I knew who you were, so I was afraid. And that's why I went and hid your talent. That's why I did nothing with it or with the life that you've given me. Here, you have back exactly what you gave. He had to accuse the master to excuse his actions. Amen. But the Lord sees right through our veil of excuses. They're thin to him. He sees right through them and sees us for who we truly are. I mean, look at verse 26. The master responds, you wicked and slothful servant. Total opposition to the good and faithful servant. You wicked and slothful servant. This man was evil and lazy. That's what led to his actions. There was no fault with God. All the fault was with him. The master continues to expose the man. If you really thought that I was so hard and so cruel, then you would have made sure you had something to give me back more than what I gave you. I mean, if I was so demanding as you say I am, then you should have been led to invest my money with the bankers to ensure you had something worthwhile to, to appease this big, angry, imaginary God in your mind. He didn't know God. He had a perfunctory relationship with him. He professed him to be master, but he didn't personally know the character of God. He had not personally had his heart warmed under God's white hot passion for his own glory and his white hot love for his own people. Amen. He did not know the joy it brings God's people to fulfill the purpose for which we've been created. To worship the Lord and to enjoy him forever. This man didn't waste the master's money. I mean, he still have it. He gave it back to him. 
but he wasted his life and not using what the Lord gave him for his glory. And in the end, this man, unlike the other two, was not commended, but was condemned. Verse 28 says that he had his, his one little talent confiscated. Even what he had was taken away. And then verse 30 says the man himself was cast into utter darkness, into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a description of hell. The place where all people who deny the Lord will dwell forever. Oh, this man professed the Lord with his lips, but he denied the Lord with his life. There was no fruit to show because the root was rotten. He didn't treasure God in his heart, and so he treated God as not worth living for. Friends, do not let that be you. Don't be this kind of man or woman. Don't be this kind of servant who despises the Lord's service. The Lord is coming back one day. How will he find you? Be faithful. Be diligent. Use whatever the Lord has given you that you might be able to present a good return when he returns. That you might hear King Jesus' words of commendation and receive his eternal reward. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over the little I've committed to you. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Saints, use every gift now for the Lord that you might receive the best gift later. Eternity with King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would guard us from wasting our lives and wasting the things you've given us by living for our own glory and not yours. Move us to be diligent, to be enterprising, to be creative, to be risk takers, to do all that we can with all that you've given us to add to Christ's glory and to build into his kingdom. Thank you for inviting us into this kingdom. We were rebels, but you've shown us grace. And so Lord, help us to live under your grace and show gratitude. And Lord, having been given much, help us to surrender all for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.